and the reality that uh, if you want to be an elder in this church, um, you have to have a history of personal ministry. You've got to be a shepherd, and, and that's what we want. That's what the Apostle Paul wants from all of uh, the people in, in the Lord's church. Not that we would simply get the theology down. That's, that's challenging enough. But even more importantly, that we would, get, we, would, we would not neglect the one in doing the other. So yes, learn the theology, but don't let your theology or your pursuit of theology to sabotage any desire to do personal ministry. Um, the goal of our instruction is love. And if this church is a loving church, I can tell you it has, has very much to do with the sound doctrine that is preached here and taught here. The two always go together. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that the body grows more and more into the image of Christ as each member of the body, each member of the church does its part. And so what part do we have when someone in the church body is suffering due to physical illness. Um, as we engage in personal ministry to others in the church, it's important to understand that not every counseling issue is a sin issue. Not every counseling issue is a sin issue. You say, well, I don't want to be a counselor. Too late. If anyone has ever asked you for advice and you gave counsel, the only question really is, are you giving biblical counsel? And I want to put this whole lecture here, uh, this whole class today, uh, under the, the title of, um, that we could call it just personal ministry. Because even if you have no desire to be an elder or a pastor or anything else, uh, you just want to be faithful, then faithfulness requires you to do personal ministry. And we got to be careful with this because um, we don't want to see every problem as a sin problem. If this person that you're ministering to is a believer, then you know three things about them from the start. Number one, they're a sinner. That's true. Any, uh, any non-sinners in the room? Uh, is Jesus here coming in the flesh? Uh, he hasn't become a member of our church. We are a member of him. Uh, so we are all sinners. And so sometimes we need to address sin, and that's what the last two sermons have been about, you know, loving confrontation. But not every issue is a sin issue. Uh, so sec first of all, we, we, if, if the person is a believer, he's a sinner. But secondly, he's a saint, uh, that he's, he's a child of God. And you know what that means? Uh, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's because we have the Spirit. You can do everything that God requires of you in the midst of your suffering. So that's tremendously hopeful uh, if you're a saint. But the third thing that we know about every Christian is that they are also a sufferer. And I may not know how you're suffering. I want to really limit our discussion this morning uh, to, um, to physical, personal physical suffering. How do you minister to people who are suffering physically? Sometimes the counsel that is most needed is simply counsel to encourage, to help people who are, who are suffering. So I think it's safe to say that no matter how, how small your church may be, whether it's a larger church like ours or one of our church plants, it doesn't matter. You, by default of living in a sinful world, are going to have people in your church 
who are experiencing the, the effects of sin in a very physical way. And by sin, I mean in the broadest sense that we all live in, in kind of the, the ocean of sin and we're affected by it. Um, so whether that physical suffering is cancer or diabetes or dementia or chronic fatigue or Lyme disease or heart failure or loss of sight or the ability to walk or a host of other physical problems and difficulties, many of which involve significant pain. And you might ask, if you don't know our story very well, my, the Kirk family story, uh, what, what qualifies me to talk about this? Well, I think, first of all, the Word of God, whether I've suffered or not. Um, but actually, the Kirk family has experienced our own share of suffering. Granted, uh, the suffering that we have endured is nothing compared to uh, the way some people in our church have suffered. But there have been a few things, and, and if you're new here, you may not know about my number two son. I was in seminary. We already had one child, and we were wrapping up seminary, and Chris was uh, about to give birth, and she did give birth to a, a beautiful little baby. We called him Andy, and uh, we still call him Andy. Um, <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, uh, about, <clears throat> well, as soon as he was born, it was clear that, uh, uh, that he was sick and uh, that Chris was sick as well. Um, it didn't seem to be any big deal. We took him to the hospital, took him back to the hospital, and um, they, uh, they dismissed us that evening and said, well, it's a virus. Well, it turned out to be a virus that uh, four children caught in the hospital at Child Cook's Children's, not Cook's Children's, uh, Children's Medical Center in Dallas. That would never happen here in Fort Worth, but in Dallas. Um, but two, two of the children lived and two of them died. And ours was one of the ones who lived, obviously. Um, but he had severe heart problems. Uh, two weeks in, of course, we didn't know that. We were getting ready to leave. Literally, the movers were coming to take away all of our stuff. My wife's mom had arrived to move my wife and our children to Kansas, and uh, the, the station wagon was literally sitting in the front yard as we were packing, and I came home from school that morning, and, uh, and I noticed Chris was sitting down, and Andy was over, kind of on his belly on her lap, and he was grunting, and uh, you medical students probably know that that's a bad sign, right? We didn't know that, and I said, well, what's wrong with him, and, and uh, she said, well, I think he has gas. And I said, well, you know, you guys have to get out of town here, so let me hold Andy, and you keep packing. And so I held him, and I got him under, we took, we had taken the curtains down, I got him under that Texas sun, and uh, where I could suddenly see him better, and I realized his fingers and toes were turning blue. Well, I still didn't know what that meant. I mean, my fingers and to toes turn blue when I'm cold, right? And uh, so anyway, long story short, I said, um, Hey, why don't, you, why don't you just take him to the pediatrician locally before you get on an eight-hour drive with him? And so she went to the wrong building, went to the, got in the wrong elevator, and, uh, when, and when it reached the upper floor, it opened, and a doctor stepped in, a lady doctor. She had just opened her practice, skilled pediatrician, award-winning uh, pediatrician, and she stopped and she said, can I help you? And Chris said, um, well, I'm here to see Dr. So-and-so, and... -so, and and she said, what seems to be the problem? This isn't the right building or floor for that. And, and uh, she took one look at the baby, and it was 911. 
And of course, I'm at home taking care of Josh at the time, and I don't want to go into the whole story, but what I ended up being was uh, uh, 20, 23 days in the NICU, and uh, at one point they came to us and they said, uh, we can't get them off the respirator, you're probably going to have to make a decision pretty soon. At the same time, I'm, I'm trying to finish my last papers in seminary, which I didn't do, and... Um, and then there was all the financial crisis that came with it, $300,000. That was a lot of money back then, still a lot of money. Um, uh, and we just laughed when we got the bill. You know, they were coming in at $90,000 increments. And I started laughing because I thought, that's ridiculous. I mean, if I, 20-year salary, i probably get it paid off if all I did was turn in my entire check every week to the hospital. And um, the Lord's provision on that was amazing. Um, fast forward a few years, uh, so you know, we're dealing with Andy all the time. He's taking medicine that makes him throw up, and he's, he's on all, all kinds of treatments and care. And uh, we move here, and all of that continues, and, and uh, uh, we have more children, and the twins come along, and um, uh, the twins came along, and Chris started having back problems. We're not sure if it was because of the twins or because of the car accident she had, um, both were rather devastating to her body, I think, um, but uh, started having serious, serious back problems. Uh, there were times when she was just crippled. I remember one Christmas, uh, she was in such pain. Uh, we were decorating her hospital room in, um, at Harris, preparing to have Christmas in her hospital bed. And the doctor came in and said, listen, we're not going to be able to do any kind of procedures while, you know, over Christmas, so we're just going to give you good pain medication and send you home. Ramona Cosgrove gave us uh, her, her uh, SUV, her little Escalade that she used to have, and we turned it into an ambulance because Thanksgiving that year was in Oklahoma. And somehow we got Chris into the back of that vehicle, made, you know, on a bed, kind of on a, on a mattress kind of thing, and drove her to to Oklahoma for Christmas, and there she laid on the floor in the living room uh, for the whole weekend, and, um, and that's the way life was for us. Uh, and then she had her surgery, and that was more pain and more recovery, and, and, then, uh, and then 10 years later it comes back, and we're thinking, okay, so uh, we've got these two issues we're dealing with of physical suffering, uh, and we're thinking, well, Andy goes to college, maybe he'll meet a girl, right? And they'll get married and we'll be out from under that burden. It'll be on him, right? We train our children to leave the home, not stay in it. Leave our insurance policy, not stay in it. And, um, and so we start dreaming about that future eventuality. And one day my mom calls and says, hey, um, not to alarm you or anything, but uh, Mike and Maddie were over at the house and we, we, we saw some signs here that we're concerned about and uh, I knew what she was saying because I grew up with my brother who was a type 1 diabetic. And um, she knew what the symptoms were. So Sunday morning, Chris gets them all dressed up for church. I come here to do my thing. She goes to ER and the news comes. Type 1 diabetes. And now it's going to be shots every day. And you have to learn to calculate everything you put in your... You just can't, we thought dealing with the heart issues were a heavy burden. We had no idea what diabetes was going to bring into our life. Um, and then all the financial stuff piled on top of that. And, I mean, it's just the, the, the physicality of it, the, 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 just the, the dread. I remember we would take Mike to, uh, over to Cook's for his doctor, for his endocrinologist, and they would always 
I'd bring him in, they'd weigh him and uh, take, you know, do a couple other things. And then they would always ask him one question. Um, Mike, are you depressed? Have you been depressed? And one day he said, why do they always ask me that? Well, he found out later, you know, when he got into his teen years, it, it really hit him. And um, I'm not saying that he became depressed, but he struggled. So that's a little bit of, of what's taken place in our, our family. I know in your families, you know, some, some uh, terrible and wonderful things have happened. And you'll see why I put those things together. So how do we minister to someone who's struggling with physical illness? It's an important issue, isn't it? Uh, you want to minister effectively? You're going to see people in church who are uh, suffering with physical illness. Sandy Hurlbut right now is struggling with an ankle that has got some, it's a weird thing. It's, it's, it's just, just, it's not a sprain, it's not a break, it's, a, it's not a normal diagnosis. It's something new. How do you, how do you minister to her? And uh, a lot of other people as well. So let's talk about the helper's role. You should have notes on this. And uh, the notes are probably more than I'm going to be able to make it through, but I tried to make them pretty comprehensive so you can just hold on to them and, uh, and consult them when you're about to minister to someone. That's what I do. Um, so I'm going to speed through these first things. Things They're all kind of different facets of the same exhortation. So number one, the role of, of a caring believer is to address one's response to physical illness, not the physical illness itself. And personal ministry does not require one to possess any medical knowledge at all in order to offer real help. We should rely on the sufferer to provide any needed medical information. Please don't play doctor. Um, when you start to minister to a person who's struggling with physical illness, uh, don't tell them about your essential oils. Don't recommend your chiropractor. That's not why you're there. Uh, don't give them some product that's got THC or something else that you've used that seems to have helped. I was reading Richard Baxter, who wrote in the 1600s. He's got a long section about warning of people coming to the sick and bringing their untrained medical ideas and causing more harm than good. And... Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not against chiropractors, and I'm not against, you know, I take my share of, of supplements in the morning to help me get going and keep going and, and all of that stuff. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you care best for people who are struggling with physical illness? And it is not the best care to go in and, and give them your opinion about their medical problem. Uh, even if you do possess medical background, right, you guys in the back? Even if you do possess a medical background, you should not play the role of a physician. If you are a doctor and that other person's under a doctor's care already, it would be unethical for you to give them medical advice. Uh, in in uh, ACBC, that's our Association of Biblical Counseling, uh, there are a number of medical doctors and they will all tell you when we are counseling, we do not practice medicine. That's not what they're there for. So accept the diagnosis. It's not your job as a ministering Christian to prove or disprove someone's diagnosis. Don't recommend other possible diagnoses or methods of diagnosis or treatments. The help should focus on assisting this brother or sister to deal with the illness from a spiritual perspective, not a medical perspective. Okay, so that's, 
somewhat redundant through that, but you get the point, right? Don't play doctor with people. Um, I don't know if you've been in that situation, but I've been, I've had uh, medical issues before, and I've had people lay hands on me and try to heal me and, or, or want me to take some kind of gross green substance that, you know, and, and I always think, you know, I have a doctor. I have a doctor. And, and that's the way the person is going to feel uh, with you if you come and, and provide medical treatment. So don't do that. So what do we do? Well, um, in personal ministry, very similar to biblical counseling, the first thing you do is gather data because Proverbs 18, 13 says, he who answers before he is heard, it is his folly and shame. Uh, don't give them counsel. Don't, don't, don't even. So I, I, I was recently um, mentoring a counselor and uh, one of the things I do with them is they have to send me a limited number of audio recordings. They get permission to do that from the, the counselee and whatever. And uh, so I get this, and, and right out of the chute, uh, this new budding counselor starts giving hope, giving hope, giving hope. And, uh, and the man stopped him. I'm not kidding. One minute into the session, he says, do you even know why we're here? And... Uh, Giving hope is wonderful, but you got to do it at the right time. If you give hope before you've heard, or if you give any kind of counsel before you've heard what the problem is, it's going to come across as presumptuous, even if what you say is true. They're going to feel uncared for, like you're trying to fix them rather than care for them. So uh, here's some information that uh, you should collect. How was, how was the diagnosis made? And... Uh, now, I'm not backing up on, on what I said earlier. Don't, don't play doctor. But here's the thing. You want to know, did they self-diagnose? Have they been on the Internet and they decided that they have, you know, Bora Bora disease? Or I just made that up, guys. So just um, something, you know, um, that happens. Uh, you know, one of my primary concerns is if they self-diagnose. Then I'm going to say, have you seen your doctor? You know, my first first thing that I'm going to counsel you to do is to go see a doctor. Um, basic background on the condition. Does it involve significant pain? Does it cause impairment in some way? Uh, for my wife, there was periods of time there where she couldn't walk um, because of the pain. And uh, the, uh, some people can walk, but only with crutches. Uh, some people have, you know, uh, migraines that, that just never let up. So, uh, what kind of impairment does it cause? What lifestyle changes have been occasioned because of this condition? Uh, what is the effect of any medications? Does it make them drowsy? Does it keep them from thinking clearly? Again, you're not a, you're not a pharmacist either. You're just trying to get a feel for what they're experiencing, what they're struggling with. And then what about the future treatment? What about the prognosis? Has there been one? Does the doctor give you any hope? Sometimes they give you terms that aren't terribly helpful. Uh, like with Andy, they always told us he had mitocardia. Mitocardia for years. People would ask, oh, what, what does he have? He had, well, he has mitocardia. And then when he became a teenager, we got a new doctor. And I said, hey, by the way, what does mitocardia mean? And he said, oh, it's just Latin. It means heart problem. <laughs> we knew that. Everybody knows he had a heart problem. But... Um, so what's the prognosis? And what's the treatment? But here's, here's where we're going with this. And this is number two, I think, in your notes. Collect information about the counselee's response 
to their pain or to their physical illness. Um, what is his thinking and attitude about his condition? How have family and friends responded? Sometimes they don't respond well. Sometimes all the things that I'm going to tell you not to do, they, they just do all of that. Um, what's, so here's, you might ask, how do, you, how do you get that information? One of the ways I get that information is just to say, so, we're not, we're not really talking theology here yet, um, but uh, I'll say, so, tell me, what's, what's the Lord teaching you uh, through this difficulty? And they'll say, well, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, what's he teaching you about himself? I'm, I'm just asking questions. I'm not teaching him. I'm not preaching to him. I'm not laying on truth. I'm asking him or her, what's the Lord teaching you? And you know what? Sometimes the response is, oh, hadn't, hadn't thought about the Lord might be teaching me through this. You've already ministered. You've already got them thinking about things that are important that they wouldn't have thought about if you had not gone and asked the question. And, and another follow-up question, if they do okay with that one, ask, um, what's the Lord teaching you about yourself? And then uh, you might give that to them for homework if they don't have a ready answer. And you might just say, hey, I'm going to be back tomorrow. If you want, we can talk about this again. If you don't want to, then we won't. Um, so, where is God in the counseling? How do they believe God is involved in their cause of suffering? Is God working for my good, or is he punishing me? Sometimes, when there's a chronic illness, uh, people come for counsel. Uh, I, I, I give them a, a little test. It's kind of a written test to help them, uh, help them communicate to me what they're really thinking is God's involvement. And a lot of times their conclusion is God is punishing me and I don't know why. And a lot of times that is just false. It's just false. The pain is distorting their ability to think about God rightly and praise God you're there to help them with that. Because that can be more agonizing than the pain itself if you think this is untreatable or I'm not going to get over this maybe ever or maybe not for a long time, and it's the punishment of God. He's cursing me. That can be a, a heavier burden than the pain itself. Are they trusting in God in the midst of their suffering? How do they believe God can give hope in their suffering? And, uh, and that gives us to the second thing. So it, it, we always, when, I, when I'm working with a counselor, um, I always ask him, okay, remind me, what are the two goals of the first the first time you meet with someone, what are the two goals? And the two goals are these, collect data, right? You're asking questions. And the second thing is you're giving hope. So where does hope come from? This may be the, the uh, I may not get it through all of this, but uh, this may be the most hopeful for you. Uh, how do you give hope? Psalm 23, when my wife and I were struggling with Andy's condition, uh, and we were, that, at that particular time, we were already here and still struggling with Andy's condition. It's before he got his first defibrillator. He's now had a second. We found out uh, this week that he uh, has to have that one replaced. The battery wears out about every seven to 10 years, and so it's time for a replacement. 
So now he works in the medical field, and he's seen people go under and the bad things that happen. And <laughs> the first two times he had this surgery, he didn't mind as a, as a kid. Now he's worked in a hospital, and he's like, man, I don't want them putting me under. <laughs> um, but when we were addressing his issues and just struggling under the whole burden of it, uh, for some reason, the Lord scheduled me to study Psalm 23. I didn't know that was on the schedule coming up, but uh, I think I was asked to preach through Psalm 23, and so I hit it hard and studied, and it has been the most encouraging passage of Scripture. And I won't work through all of this. You can get online, though, on our, um, on our church app and look for Psalm 23. It might be called the Sovereign Shepherd. It's a whole message on Psalm 23. But this was the relevant part for us. Psalm 23, and you know it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which means I shall not lack anything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then here we go. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Okay, so I'm in, in ministry here, struggling with this child you know, and his physical problems, and all the, I mean, monumental um, uh, financial burden. And I, and I start studying that statement. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And you know what I discovered? Those of you who have been here have heard this story so many times, you already know. Uh, but what I discovered is the simple translation of that phrase, guides me in, in the paths of righteousness, is simply this. He guides me in the right path. This is the right path. Are you following Jesus and suffering? Your good shepherd, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, he is your shepherd. And no matter what you're experiencing when you're following him, he is always leading you down the right path. One of the last times I, I got to talk with Dana in the hospital, Dana, my former secretary who passed away of cancer a couple years ago, Rodney's wife, I walked into her hospital room, we're talking, I'm asking her some of these questions, and she said, I got a question for you, and I said, well, what is it? And she said, is this still the right path? And then she looked at me with that Dana look, and she said, Pastor, this is, this is the right path, isn't it? You need to know that it's the right path. Um, and then Psalm 23, again, the very next phrase, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's still the right path. And you know what? If you know that God is sovereign and that he will never lead you astray, that this, is, this has to be the right path, then, I know in my own heart, something about that truth just summons courage in me. Courage to face the next day, the next trial, the next diagnosis, or the next treatment, or whatever it is. And how about this one, Isaiah 41, 10, very similar message except expanded. Isaiah 41.10, if you don't have that memorized or if you can't recall the reference, you need to work on that. 
if you're going to be an effective minister in this church and in the lives of other people, in, in, in your ministry to your spouse, perhaps, or your child. Isaiah 41.10. And the message here is, um, the Father is personally involved in your suffering. I learned from Deborah Dar that some people call this the five pillars. And listen to the five. And each one of them starts with, I will or I am. And it's God speaking. Isaiah 41.10 reads, Fear not, for I am with you. Isn't that, what he, isn't that what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 23? I will not fear, for you are with me. Same message here. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, each one of them could be a sermon in itself. Each one of those five statements will be a massive ballast in, in the proverbial ship of the person who is suffering, no matter what they're suffering. God has good purposes for your suffering. And you think about John chapter 9 when Jesus walked into the courtyard and there's the man who's born blind and the disciples, whose theology was kind of messed up, said, Lord, can we just talk about this blind man who's been blind from birth? Whose sin was it? Right? Bad counselor. Bad counselor. <laughs> Don't go after sin first. And Jesus says, uh, they said, is it, is it his sin or is it his parents? You know, the only two categories they had. It's got to be sin. The only question is, was it his sin or his parents' sin? He was born, from, uh, born blind from, from the beginning. And uh, the Lord says, Neither. Neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed in him. It says something about physical illness. It says something about our suffering physical illness. The reason this man was blind was because God made him blind. And you know what? That should give you hope. God is in this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, um, Paul said, when he evaluated his own suffering, remember the thorn in the flesh that he play, prayed three times that the Lord would remove, and the Lord said no. Now, I think, you know, nobody knows what the thorn in the flesh was. I think there are two plausible possibilities that are on top of the list. Some people say it's, he was bald. I don't think that's right. Um, some, I, I think it was either a person um, who was harassing him constantly. Uh, he said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. Um, but Alexander, Alexander went after him. Maybe it was Alexander. Maybe it was someone like that. Or, uh, when you study the Apostle Paul and all of the beatings and what those beatings were like, uh, I, I can't imagine what kind of thorn in the flesh would come out of that, but I bet it's, it's myriad. I bet it's all kinds of secondary issues, physical issues. And, uh, and so here's what, here's, here's what Paul's uh, spiritual diagnosis was. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. It was to keep me from exalting myself. Paul knew he had a pride issue. 
And Paul knew that, that whatever he concluded, that whatever this physical issue is, it's to help me with my pride. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's the good? The good is to conform you to the, to the image of his son. And sometimes that's painful. Or think about this. Johnny Erickson Tata, if you don't know her, you should get to know her. She's a quadriplegic since a diving accident in 1967 when she was 17 years old. And she has thought deeply about the benefits that come from suffering. And I've recorded a few here for us with appropriate scriptures. Number one, okay, so these are her own musings. She's, she's quadriplegic, quadriplegic, which means, in case you don't know, neither her hands, her ar arms, nor her legs work. Um, the only thing that works is her, basically her neck, her head. Uh, she's taught herself how to paint uh, with a paintbrush in her teeth. Uh, for a, quite a while there, she could drive. They, they created a, a vehicle that she could drive. She started Johnny and Friends, which is an international uh, ministry to disabled people. Uh, she's had a huge influence in, uh, in American life and culture. The reason we have ramps all over the place here is in part because of the influence of Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, uh, and, and, and I mean that in a legal sense, in the, in the, um, uh, the creation of laws in, in, in our country. Uh, she was a part of that. And here's, here's some things that she has concluded. Number one, benefits from suffering. Afflictions increase my awareness of God's sustaining power. God is the one who upholds me through my afflictions. Realizing this gives me a deeper appreciation for his grace and power that sustain. Psalm 68, 19. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Daily bears our burdens. And that doesn't mean that he's going to relieve the pain. It means he is doing what he promised. He would be with you in the pain. Number two, suffering, I, I love this phrase, suffering bankrupts me, making me dependent on God. Now, I've told you this before. Uh, I, I pray, I talk to God about my dependence on him. I, I probably pray about that more than I pray about anything else. When I was walking from the office door to this door, 30 minutes ago, I was praying, God, I know I can't do this. Whatever it is you intend to do in this next hour, I am dependent and I feel it. Thank you. Bless your people. Here's what she's saying. Suffering bankrupts me, makes me dependent on God. When afflictions overwhelm me, I look to our powerful God who can provide stability and balance. Stability and balance. Second Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, God says to Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. Not, not strength is the implication. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Number three, through suffering, my spirit is broken. I am humbled and emptied. God pours out his healing and help on those whose hearts are broken and submissive. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Number four. Suffering leads me to discernment and knowledge. It drives me to God's statutes. My obedience in hardship helps me see from God's point of view. For example, Psalm 119, 66 and 67. The psalmist says this, teach, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your law. I keep your word. And by the way, there's other, let's see if I can pop this open very quickly. In Psalm 119, I was looking at this this morning. Psalm 119, uh, kind of toward the end. Oop, that's not it. Just a few scriptures. Um, here we go. Um, 67, before I was, affla- uh, before I was <laughs> afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Isn't that interesting? In the middle of your suffering, you can go here and remember that God has a purpose in your suffering. And whatever that purpose is, it's good. He is good and he does good. And then look at verse 70. Um, Their heart is unfeeling like fat. I guess fat doesn't have any nerves in it, maybe. Um, But I delight in your law. It is, watch this, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Lord, if my affliction causes me to love your word more, Praise God. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. These are powerful, powerful verses as I have seen them used in the lives of those who have suffered. Johnny Erickson says in number five here, the weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God's grace. The harder I lean on him, the stronger I discover him to be, and the bolder my testimony to his grace. Many of you know that uh, when, when Dana found out that she had cancer, I mean, it took a little while for things to really kick in for her, the reality of what was happening, and that she was likely going to be going to the Father soon. She became a fearless evangelist. And, uh, and she would say to me, why did it take so long? Why did it take cancer to turn me into an evangelist? Uh, I would visit her in the hospital. Nobody could walk in, into the room without her saying, hey, can you, have you met my Jesus? That would be the first thing she would say. And they would say, well, no, ma'am. They're, they're going, Shh, no, ma'am. Well, come, can you come over here for a second? I just sit right down. <laughs> and she would go. Johnny Erickson said, I discover... 
I discover in my suffering, I discover him to be uh, st stronger, and he makes me bolder than my, than my testimony of his grace. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That's an interesting statement, suffering for the gospel. Suffering, if you suffer well, it promotes the gospel. Listen, if, if you suddenly get healed from your suffering, the doctors will say, oh, it's, it, it's great. You, you think you were healed, and you know, we know it was the medication. And okay, you, you have your view, and we have ours. But if in the midst of your suffering, your contentment, your love, your ministry to others, your care, your joy, there is no category to dismiss that. The weaker I am, the harder, harder I must lean on God. Okay, number six. Suffering leads us to worship. God uses suffering to reveal his glory and worth above all things, even health. His glory is worth more than health. In the Psalms, Asaph struggles with why it appears the wicked seem to enjoy health and prosperity when he is suffering. And then he complains about that and says, basically, I complained about that until I came into the sanctuary of God and I understood. Asaph concludes this psalm with worship in the midst of his suffering. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing besides you. My flesh, it is my body, and my heart, my physical heart, may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's where you want your, the people you're ministering to be. It's where you, it's where you should be. You're going to suffer this week. Now, I, I think really that the, the problem in, in uh, one of the main problems in marriage, when there's, a, when there's a serious marriage problem or a significant, I mean, they're all significant, um, I think, I think one of the things you should look for is this. Typically speaking, Christians who are having marriage problems, one of the problems is they don't know how to suffer well. Because there's sin flying around the house and they're contributing to the problem and they think that's going to make it better and it doesn't. Now, I'm not saying you should become a, a carpet to be stomped on and and none of that. But I am saying there is a better way to respond to your suffering, even if your suffering is coming from your husband or your wife. Okay, next. Teach appropriate biblical truth. Now, before I get there, let me just say this. And when you find out someone is suffering, uh, the first thing you do is not, emphasis, you do not go to Romans 8.28. <laughs> Don't walk in with your Romans 8.28 hammer or flag. And you say, well, what do you do? You just, you just walk in and you throw your arms around them and you weep. I remember when, um, uh, when, when Caleb's brother Peter was hit um, by that truck 
And uh, we got word and went up to the hospital in this big group. Uh, a lot of you were there probably. Uh, the place was, the, the floor was filled. I'm surprised they didn't chase us out. And um, I come up to Doug and uh, Doug is Caleb and Peter's dad. And, uh, and I came up to him and he, he turned around and he knew exactly what I would do and I knew exactly what he would do. And we just latched on to each other and just wept. His son was still alive. He's still alive. And uh, it has all kinds of needs. But they didn't know at the time he was going to live. And, um, you know, I didn't give him theology. I didn't pull out my Bible even. All I did was weep with him. Learn the lesson of Job's friends. They were great counselors that first whole week when they said nothing. It's amazing, though, when the doctors finally invited them into the room where Peter was laying, and uh, they were in there with him for a few minutes, and for whatever reason, they poked their head out and called me in, and I stood with them. We're all hanging on to the side of the bed, and uh, Sila which is Caleb and Peter's mom. She kind of leans over Peter and looking at me and she said, isn't the doctrine of the sovereignty of God a glorious thing? And Doug turned to me, he was next in line and with a big smile on his face and he said, I just don't see how anyone could survive a tragedy like this without believing in the precious goodness and sovereignty of God. Um, it was a monumental day. And it was a great lesson in, in care. And, uh, and Doug and Sela are just uh, precious people and they know the word of God. And, but you know what? Most people that you're going to be ministering to, they're not going to say those things to you. And you've got to be careful about the timing on when you say things like that to people. So teach biblical, appropriate biblical truth. So here are some of those truths. Suffering is inevitable in this fallen world. Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. This, this may not be because of sin. It may just be because we live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world after the Garden of Eden, after the fall, after the curse. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, here's another biblical truth. That your temptation, whatever is provoking the temptation, is common to man. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man? Now, that may not sound like a huge thing, but when someone is suffering and they can't make sense of it and it seems really weird and odd and, and you're able to say, listen, I know that they haven't come up with a diagnosis yet, but this is common. It's not common in the sense that most people experience it. Most people don't. But this has happened to other people, and somehow that sometimes gives tremendous hope. In fact, in that passage, there's, there's four ways to give hope, and I don't have time to walk through those. I'll let you discover them. Number two, there are children in the hallway who need to be addressed. <laughs> uh, God's grace is not always the removal of pain. God's grace is not always the removal of pain. Remember... <laughs> remember Paul said he prayed three times Lord take this from me and the Lord said no my grace is sufficient for you you are going to continue to 
to have the pain. And I am with you. And it will be carefully, perfectly measured for you. Um, and then number three, it is possible to be victorious in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering. Again, the Apostle Paul, who suffered more than we can imagine. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. Okay, he had been shipwrecked, he had been stoned to death, he had been beaten how many, however many times. I think that uh, he, was, he was beaten in Tarsus, his hometown. I think he was beaten there a lot uh, after he came to Christ and went home to his Pharisee father in that Jewish community. But we have, the, here's what he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That is, it, our bodies are like jars, jars of clay. They're, they're breakable, prone, prone to cracking. And why, in, in God's providence, did, did he put his treasure in jars, jars of clay? Here's why. So that the all-surpassing power would evidently belong to God. In other words, there'd be evidence that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, here's what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not, what's the next word? Crushed. We're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. You know, you think of Paul's experience. When you read it, you think, really? I mean, come on, I would call what you experienced being crushed. Oh, no, 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 that, that's not what we call it. I'm not calling it that. My point is, it is possible to be victorious in the midst of your suffering. It is possible to respond to your suffering in a manner that pleases the Lord. He says, uh, we are not destroyed, always carrying in the body, in the, body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, we are evidently in pain. We are evidently suffering. People can see that. And yet, it gives us the perfect opportunity to share the transforming love of Christ. Can you show Christ in your suffering? Your suffering is always under God's sovereign rule, number four. Number five, your suffering will never exceed your ability to handle. That's back 1 Corinthians 10, 13 again. God promises both present and future grace. That's grace for the next moment. It's present grace. And future grace is um, all over the scriptures. John 14, 1 through 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Uh, texts like that were glorious when my son Andy became a teenager and he would go in for another surgery or procedure and, and, uh, and one time he asked, Dad, am I gonna die? And I would take him to scriptures like this. The other one was John 11. I, I am the resurrection and the life. He who... Um, believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives, that means lives now, and believes in me shall what? Never die. So the answer to your question is no, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. 
you may, you may open your eyes in heaven, but whatever you think dying is, that's not going to happen to you. None of the terrors of death will be yours. And praise the Lord, there was also healing for him. Regarding God's involvement in trials, there's some more scriptures. I'm running out of time. Regarding sickness, James 5, 14 through 15 appeals to us not only to call the elders, but to examine your heart and see if there's any sin there. Maybe that, maybe the Lord is disciplining you. It's always appropriate to ask. You don't want to be morbidly introspective. You don't want to be self-condemning. But it is a worthy question. And one of the reasons it's a worthy question is because of 1 Corinthians 11.30. For this reason, many among you are sick, are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. That is, some of them have died. What was that about? Where they were sinning. They were being flippant when they came to uh, the gathering of the church where they would share a meal and the Lord's table and, and they were being divisive and they were not caring for one another and they were not putting the other person ahead of themselves and the rich people were getting there early and eating all the food and then the, when the poor people got off of work, they came and nothing was left. You come to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner You're, and, and, it, and it doesn't just have to be about that. The Lord may be disciplining you for uh, any number of sins. And then number three here, ministry principles. You guys have all of these. Look at B. Help them to think biblically about all aspects of their condition. And there's some scriptures. Um, teach them that the difficulties of the condition will not be allowed to exceed their ability. I mentioned that already, but there's that 1 Corinthians 10 again. Reassure them that the illness is under the control of a sovereign God and I'll let you read the Jerry Bridges quote that comes out of, there's a footnote at the bottom, uh, trusting God, he amplifies this and unpacks it. Um, one scripture I do want to point you to, and you've heard me say this before, but Exodus chapter 4, 11, uh, can give people great hope. Remember Moses was complaining that he's the wrong man, don't send me to Israel, I can't speak. And the Lord responded and said, uh, then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth, and who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So, so what's your issue? Is it chronic fatigue? Where'd that come from? What's the source? Is it not I, the Lord? Your, your migraine, what's the source? Is it not I, the Lord? Your diabetes, is it not I, the Lord? I mean, that's great news. It's great news. A sovereign God who loves you and has expressed his love for you by dying in your place, who could give no greater sacrifice than himself and did. He is with you and he has designed this for you. So respond well. Much more to say here. I really am out of time. Let me, well, let me just say one more thing. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, H here, suggests that they find in their suffering an appropriate ministry. And the only reason I said that is because I'll never forget this picture of coming home for lunch one day when my wife was at her worst. And she was in bed, as she always was for those periods of weeks. And, uh, and I came into the house and I heard two women talking and, and coming out of our bedroom. And I went down there and there was a woman in our church 
who was sitting beside her bed. And I thought, oh, that's really sweet. She came to counsel my wife. And I walked into the room and realized, no, my wife invited her to come and receive counsel. She was ministering uh, from bed. And it was a powerful ministry. So I think the lady called and said, hey, I'm really struggling with something. Can, do you have, you have, can I come over? And she came over and found Chris in bed. And, uh, and Chris didn't say this, but, but the image that I got was her laying there saying, okay, so tell me about your problem. <laughs> you know, the problem gets smaller. When we were in the hospital with Andy, we, we, uh, Chris and I uh, realized no matter how bad things are, somebody's got it worse than you. And somebody may have it way worse than you, and they're responding better. Uh, the Lord doesn't promise to take away the pain, but he does promise to give you everything that you need. His word is sufficient, and Christ is sufficient to give you everything you need to respond to the physical suffering or any kind of suffering in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Let me give you one... Um, where is First Thessalonians? Here it is. A benediction. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.